Hi friends, great to be speaking to you. Now just a quick note, if you are watching this, then it's not live and I'm presumably at home in isolation and this was recorded back on Wednesday. Look, God willing, I'll be back with you next Sunday. Well, it seems longer, but it was only a couple of weeks ago that I certainly had no idea who the president of the Ukraine was. And yet now, not only do we know all about him, I suspect that many of us are probably pretty impressed by him. I think it's fair to say that he's emerged as one of the great wartime leaders. In the videos that he seems to shoot himself on a mobile phone, there he is in the middle of this war zone and using this calm but deliberate manner, he rallies his people as he speaks plainly to them. And it's this same relatable self when he's speaking to others too. And so when the US offered to get him out of there, he simply said, I need ammo, not a ride. Again, when he addressed the European Union, this English translator got so emotional as he was sort of translating what the president was saying that the translator himself started to cry. Such was the simplicity and yet the power of his words. Now, why do I mention him? Well, because in many ways, he was just so unlikely to be a good wartime leader. Before the war, the people weren't so sure about him as president. Some thought he needed to do more to fight corruption. Some thought he shouldn't have been so happy to engage in talks with Putin. So it's not like everyone loved him before the war, but even more remarkable, before he became president, his only experience in politics was pretending to be the president on a TV show. This guy was an actor, often taking comedic roles. And so you wonder, if the people of the Ukraine had known before the election that their next president would need to lead them during a time of war, would they have still chosen him? Or would they have chosen a more respected military figure? A more usual wartime leader, someone with more political status. Well, in today's passage, Jesus directs a question to the teachers of the law. Who were they expecting? What type of leader were they waiting for? Now, we already know from Mark's gospel that the teachers of the law would ultimately reject Jesus. They would decide that Jesus, he wasn't the leader that they were waiting for. And so recall back in chapter 8, verse 31, when Jesus foretold how the teachers of the law would reject him. From verse 31, Jesus said how he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Or again in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus again refers to himself when he says that, We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
But why is that? Why don't the teachers of the law accept Jesus as their long-promised leader? And what type of leader were they actually waiting for? Well, just quickly, let's back up a step. Who were these teachers of the law? Well, other English translations refer to them as scribes. And that's helpful, I think, because it, it makes it clear that they were a different religious group. So they were distinct from the Pharisees, uh, they were different from the chief priests, and they weren't part of the Sadducees either. And so who were they? Well, as you might expect, they were experts in the Old Testament law. That was their thing. People would look to them to make decisions about how the Old Testament law was to be understood, how it was to be implemented. And as a reflection of their influence, a number of them were members of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling parliament at the time. So that was significant. But why weren't they so keen on Jesus? Well, perhaps the best way to come at this is by trying to pinpoint the type of leader that they had wanted. And Jesus gives us a clue in verse 35. We're told that while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked them, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? And so that's a clue. According to Jesus, the teachers of the law were expecting that a son of David would be sent, that this future son of David would be their long-promised leader. But what does that mean? Well, the son of David as a title refers back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there we read about how God said to King David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so hopefully we can see what's going on here. God promised King David that one of his descendants would be king over God's kingdom forever. And so the teachers of the law, they would have been on the lookout for this descendant of King David. But actually there's more to it. The leaders must have had something more in mind than just a direct lineage from King David. After all, Jesus himself was that very thing. He was a descendant of King David. There was no dispute about that. And so it seems that the teachers of the Lord, they weren't just looking forward to a physical descendant of King David. What they figured was that this promised king would actually do much the same things that King David himself had done back in the day. And so just as the historical King David ruled over a sizable empire, so too the teachers of the law were looking forward to a new David who would overthrow their Roman oppressors and once more re-establish the Jewish kingdom. To state it simply, the teachers of the law were looking forward to a military ruler. That's partly why they rejected Jesus. He didn't resemble the leader that the teachers of the law were looking for. 
And so what does Jesus say? Uh, What does he say to the supposed experts? What does he say to those who were supposed to know the Old Testament back to front? What proof does Jesus have that the Old Testament was actually looking forward to him? Well, Jesus manages to show that the teachers of the law, they, they didn't know what they were talking about. And he does it by quoting just one verse from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 110. And it's the verse where King David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, what's so significant about that one verse? How does that verse show the teachers of the Lord to be fools? Well, Jesus points it out. He says, if David himself calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Now, let me explain this. What Jesus is saying is that the promised leader of God's people, he wouldn't just be a son of David, he wouldn't just be a descendant, he wouldn't be on the same level as the historical King David. Because King David himself refers to this coming king as his Lord. King David refers to him as his master. And so this promised leader will be more than just a mere descendant of King David. He'll be in some way superior. He'll have more authority than than even the greatest ever human king in the Old Testament. And so that's a direct challenge to the teachers of the law. They're expecting just another David, just another military ruler. That's not what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament wasn't looking forward to just another David. It was looking forward to someone far more powerful. And so here is Jesus' invitation to the teachers of the Lord to take a closer look at him, to see whether he is David's greatest son, to see if he really is David's superior. Well, there is no recorded response from the teachers of the Lord to this challenge. But what we are told is that the crowds, they loved it. That's verse 37. But but why? Why did the crowds listen with delight? It's a very simple reason. These teachers of the law, who were supposed to know the Old Testament back to front, they'd been extensively trained, they'd been schooled in the Old Testament, and yet Jesus, this seemingly untrained Galilean, manages with just one verse to make them all look like fools. Well, let's step back for a moment. Because we now need to get a feel for the bigger picture and for what is really going on here. And we can do that by by simply asking, why? Why did Jesus start this? Why pick a fight with these influential religious leaders? Why make them look bad in front of the huge crowd in Jerusalem at this time of Passover? That's certainly not how you win friends. But actually, what Jesus does here 
makes perfect sense when we realise where we are at in the overarching storyline of this gospel. You might recall in our previous series back in Mark chapters 1 to 8, Jesus actively tried to hide his true identity, hide his authority, hide the fact that he was David's greater son. For example, recall Mark chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, when an evil spirit said to Jesus, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And so Jesus hid his true identity. He said, be quiet. And that's what Jesus ended up doing for for so much of the early ministry on earth. But in our passage today, things have changed. A switch has been flicked and it's, it's all out in the open. Jesus is openly and directly revealing exactly who he is. Now look, this change didn't begin here, it actually started back in chapter 11. We looked at that a, a couple of weeks, of weeks ago with those three provocative and, and deeply symbolic acts. You know, first we had Jesus riding into Jerusalem, but it wasn't because he was tired. It was because according to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that's how the long-promised king was supposed to enter Jerusalem. And so there he was revealing his true identity. Second, Jesus clearing the temple as he, as he overturned the tables of the money changers and the traders there. It wasn't because he thought that the produce was bad. It, it was because according to Isaiah 56, verses 7 8, when the long-promised King Messiah came to Jerusalem, he would get rid of the false worship at the temple. He would put it to an end. Again, Jesus was revealing his true identity. Or third, the cursing of the fig tree. It wasn't because Jesus was hungry and there was no figs for Jesus to eat because it was the wrong season for figs. It was because of Micah chapter 7 verses 1 to 6. God's people can be likened to a fig tree without fruit, a fruitlessness that was caused by the corruption of the religious authorities, a failure that the promised king would correct. Again, Jesus was revealing his true identity. And so a switch has been flicked in Jesus' earthly ministry. He's not hiding his identity anymore because the time has come to reveal who he truly is and what we see in this confrontation with the teachers of the law is that when he reveals his true identity well actually the religious leaders they still won't accept him because he's not a match he doesn't fit the profile he's not who they wanted Again, they wanted a military ruler, one just like King David back in 1000 BC. But that's not who Jesus is. He's not David. He's David's greater son who is actually so much better. But if we push harder and think about the movement of the narrative as a whole, what we realise is that this wasn't an innocent mistake. So it wasn't just that these leaders were godly people who just got it wrong. No, no, the the reason why they ultimately rejected Jesus runs so much deeper. It's actually because they were very shallow people. People fixated on appearances. That's why they didn't accept Jesus. 
Let me show what I mean as we move into chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. I'll read those verses for you. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So for the teachers of the law, rejecting Jesus, it wasn't an innocent mistake. It's because they were shallow people, vain people, people obsessed with appearances, people obsessed with being well thought of, people who demanded not just to have the best seats in the house, but who needed to be seen to have the best seats in the house. But even more than that, having achieved this status, in their community, they used it to their advantage by exploiting the weak, exploiting the vulnerable, exploiting those who could not get justice. Now, we don't know exactly how they did that, but to devour widows' houses, that's idiomatic, and it's perhaps equivalent to today's phrase, eating them out of house and home. And so what were they doing? Well, we can only speculate. You know, perhaps it was excessive legal fees as they managed an estate that they were made trustees of. Uh, Who knows? But whatever the exact nuance, it does sound a bit like the abuse of power that the Me Too movement exposed among our Hollywood A-listers, which is to say that the abuse of power, that is nothing new. Exploiting vulnerable people because you know that you can get away with it because you know that there is nothing that they can do about it. That, that is nothing new. It has always happened and Jesus hates it. Again, verse 40. These men will be punished most severely. However, as we come to the next section, we are to once again see that Jesus' kingdom will be very different. A lack of status won't be a problem. A lack of influence won't be an issue. A lack of means won't be a setback. Or in today's world, we we might say that a lack of Facebook friends or Instagram followers or a lack of exclusive invitations or designer clothing, they won't be a problem because appearances, they don't matter to Jesus because in his kingdom status, it is not a thing. And we see that so clearly in verses 41 to 44. This is just a stunning account of what truly matters to Jesus because Jesus is now watching the crowd put money into the temple treasury. And what Jesus noticed and what presumably everyone in the crowd also noticed was how much money the the different people put in. A particular note were the rich. Everyone could see just how much money they threw in because it was a lot. Just pause for a moment. What might you expect Jesus to say here? Might he commend the rich for giving so much? Well, if that's what you're thinking, then let me share some words from Melinda French Gates. So she's Bill Gates' ex-wife. About a month ago, she said this. It's important to acknowledge 
that giving away money your family will never need is not an especially noble act. There's no question in my mind that the real standard for generosity is set by the people who give, even when it means going without. Now, you hear what she's saying, right? We sometimes hear about these incredibly rich people who give away such huge sums of money. And look, it's good that they do that, right? Let me be clear about that. I love that they give huge amounts of money to whatever, I guess, to whatever cause it is, which are, they're often excellent causes. But are they generous? Is that actually a noble act? Because if they can still buy absolutely anything that they might ever want, and also the, the cynic might even add that perhaps they're only doing it to boost their own reputation, to promote their own image, to be seen as a good person by others. Well, Jesus doesn't praise the rich here for their contribution. In fact, the rich here function as a foil for the real hero of this story, who is the widow in verse 42. Presumably she would have been dressed in old, worn-out clothes, and she was probably embarrassed to be, to be seen giving such a, a tiny amount, not just in absolute terms, but also in comparison to the others who were, were putting in so much. But what does Jesus say? Well, what Jesus sees, he sees one to be praised. Why so? Well, first of all, the, the offering... It's actually voluntary. Only men were required to pay the temple tax and so she didn't have to give. So she gave because she wanted to. But more than that, what Jesus tells us is that when she threw in those two small copper coins, she actually gave all that she had. So she had two coins to live on and she put in both. Now let's be clear. The point of this story is not about how much we should give, although perhaps it should inform us. Rather, the point Jesus is making is about appearance versus reality. You might think that the rich, because they put in so much, that they were the most generous, that they were the most godly, that they were to be upheld and esteemed. But Jesus says no. Jesus says that there can be a yawning gap between appearance and reality. Which brings us back to the teachers of the law. They appear to be the religious authorities. They appear to be the ones that people should look up to, but in reality they know very little about the things of God. Now we will come back to this and what it means for us today and and specifically what it means when it comes to selecting leaders that we follow. But I wonder if this passage raises a question for you. Who do you identify with in this passage? Are you the woman? Or are you one of the teachers of the law? Well, let me suggest that aren't we all one of the status seekers? Don't we all long to be admired? And don't we all gravitate toward the lovely, move toward the likeable, 
associate with the respectable. That's just part of the human condition, right? It's why in every sphere of life there are better and worse things. It doesn't matter what specific area we're talking about. Take computers. There's Apple, right? That's the best. And sneakers, it's Nike. That's the best. Cars, it's Toyota. That's the best. Now, sure, right now I'm, I'm really just mentioning the brands that I personally like. But, you know, it's true, right? It's why brands are so powerful. We, we place everything in a pecking order and we, we want the best. We want to be seen to have the best. And so if we had to choose between the teacher of the law and the widow, I suspect if we're being honest, wouldn't we all say that we actually line up behind the teachers of the law? But actually there is another category. It's kind of already popped up in this gospel already. Recall that Jesus doesn't condemn all the teachers of the law. Think back to last week where one of the teachers of the law, he'd asked Jesus which of the commandments was the most important. Now, we won't rehearse all that happens in that interaction, but in the end, what happened? Well, from verse 34, when Jesus saw that he, the teacher of the law, had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You see, the the pursuit of greatness the longing for status, the desire for approval. We all struggle with it, but actually it's not too strong for Jesus, just as he hints at changing the heart of that man back in the first century, so too today. Jesus can and he does change even the hardest of hearts so that we too can look past appearances and pursue what is truly pleasing to God. Well, while this passage does speak to what we value and to the contrasts between worldly and kingdom ethics, perhaps the most direct application is not about that, but rather it's about the leaders that we choose to follow. Because Jesus very clearly warns his people about the teachers of the law in the first century. They were shallow people. They were supposed to be experts in the Old Testament law, but they knew nothing about the things of God. What does that mean for us today? Well, when it comes to choosing to follow our church leaders, uh, whether that be our archbishop or the staff here at Christ Church or our growth group leaders or those in kids' ministry, youth ministry, the list goes on, what Jesus is saying is that we shouldn't choose to follow those who may appear to be impressive in the eyes of this world, but who in reality know nothing of the things of God. Now, unfortunately, examples abound of where people, churches, have got this wrong. Perhaps you've listened to a very popular podcast at the moment that has chronicled the downfall of one particular church. But I won't use that example. Let me share another. Rob Bell. He shot to fame very quickly in Christian circles, such that in 2011, when he was 41, he was listed as one of Time magazine's 100 most influential people. So he was a big deal. And he led a a big church in the United States. But jump forward to today, and I, I think we would rightly label him a false teacher. 
But let's go back to the moment he was appointed. How did it happen? Well, Ed Dobson was one of the elders who convinced the church board to appoint Rob. And this is what Ed said to convince the rest. He said, look, he can communicate. He really doesn't know the Bible, but if we can add the Bible to his communication skills, we'll have a winner. Well, the rest is history. But the short story is it was a complete disaster. And so what sort of leader do we want to lead us? Do we want one who looks impressive in the eyes of this world? Perhaps a modern-day King David. Perhaps someone who just oozes charisma. Remembering, of course, what King David actually did. He committed adultery and he killed the husband of the woman he'd taken. So he's a prime example of a one who used his power to exploit others. No, no, the, the type of leader that we need is the one who resembles the Lord Jesus and who points us to the Lord Jesus and to what truly matters. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the long-promised leader of your people. We thank you that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And we thank you that he died on the cross for us. Father, we know that all of us have a desire for status. We know that we all have a, a longing to appear to be better than we are. Father, we ask that you would get rid of that from our hearts. Father, we ask that as we choose who it is that we follow, as we choose who it is that we want to become like, those whom we wish to imitate. Father, we ask that we would choose those who resemble the Lord Jesus. And we ask that we too would increasingly become more and more like the Lord Jesus and become models for others. And Father, we thank you for those who you've put over us here at this church. Uh, we thank you in particular for Dave Mears. Uh, we thank you for the, the leadership and the godliness that you have given him. But for all of those in position of authority, whether it be those in our kids' ministry, teaching our kids, those in our youth ministries, our, our growth group leaders, Father, we pray that you'd be at work in all of them, making them more and more like the Lord Jesus and making them excellent models for your people here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.